I'm Colleen Sedmanyi, and this is Yoga for Life. There's an underlying belief that somehow we aren't enough, that we are unworthy frauds and losers. And Yoga for Life, we will uncover these self-imposed limitations that are keeping us from contentment and freedom. We will talk about caring too much what others think, fear of not adding up, seeking comfort, divorce, aging, relationships, grief, power, and of course, sex, one of my favorite topics. In this podcast, you can expect open, real, and raw dialogue about what keeps our hearts heavy, spirit hidden, and potential limited. We will give you yoga tools to peel back the layers, to find compassion and love for the person that is living in your body, and to learn to live the present moment fully with all of its glory and its pain. You're listening to Yoga for Life, a Himalaya learning production. For exclusive content like yoga videos to accompany the podcast that you've just heard, go to Himalaya.com and enter promo code YOGA for your first 14 days free. We hope you enjoy. Today, I will be giving you my story and hope that it makes you feel less alone as I lay it all out on the line. I am no longer afraid of you judging me. If that is what ends up happening, notice why and where it triggers you and then hit the red button if it's just too much. Every week, we will clear the slate and begin each podcast with a short meditation. You don't have to know how to meditate. You just sit. So find an easy seat. If you're comfortable closing your eyes, let your eyes drift closed. Bring your awareness all the way down to your feet. Notice the temperature of your feet. Let your awareness slide up your right leg and then up your left leg. Notice if you're sitting more to the right or to the left. Notice if there's any hardness in your belly. Feel the area behind your heart. Notice how just feeling that area, your heart softens. Feel how the heart spreads into the arms, into the soft palms of your hands, those palms that give so freely and also receive. The receiving can be much more difficult. Notice your throat. Does it feel clear? Does it feel congested? Bring your awareness to the back of your head and to the crown of your head. Feel the softness and width of your forehead. Notice the inner corners of your eyes and the skin that drapes so beautifully across the contours of your face your lips, the relaxation of your tongue. Observe your breath without changing it. 
gather your hands in front of your heart, symbolically bowing your head to your heart. Every week we will make a dedication. That dedication is an offering. We turn this time we have together into service. So bring anyone or anything into mind that maybe feels like you want to send a little extra juice, extra love. Slowly lift your head and release your hands. Let your eyes open. One of my earliest memories is seeing my mom cry. The date was November 22nd, 1963. She was ironing on the porch while listening to the radio, and I was playing at the foot of the ironing board when it happened. She set down her iron face down, rather than on the end like she always does, and put her head in her hands and started to wail. I think that this was the moment when I knew that I had to be perfect, and if I was only good enough, she wouldn't have to cry. Of course, I didn't know or wouldn't have understood, even if I had, that she had just heard on the radio that JFK had been assassinated. In my mind, her tears were because I wasn't good enough to make her happy. As I grew from a toddler to a grade schooler, I would watch my mom with a cigarette in one hand and an ashtray on her swollen belly, she was always pregnant, and rosary beads in the other hand. She would stare out the window mouthing the Hail Mary or the Our Father, depending on which bead she was holding. Tears were often streaming down her face. Damn it, I still wasn't good enough. The truth was that we had been forced to move from New York to Indiana for my dad's work, and she was miserable. We didn't fit in as there were no other Italian families, even though my mom was Irish, in our town, and we were getting hated upon, and would wake up to stickers on our car that said things like, when tires go flat, they go wop, wop, wop. This situation of trying to be perfect so mom wouldn't be sad carried on for decades and had many reincarnations. By the time that I was in the third grade, I had a bleeding ulcer. By middle school, I would stay up all night rumpling papers and throwing them in the trash because they weren't good enough. My dad would often come home from his late shift at Corning Glassworks factory and tell me to get my butt to bed, and he would even give me money if I would get a B. But even an A-plus wasn't acceptable. It had to be an A++. I was addicted to a goal that was impossible, being perfect and making everyone happy. By 14, I realized that drugs could take away some of the angst. My efforts to be perfect ended on July 4, 1974, a warm Indiana summer evening, six of us girls were headed to a party. We were 14, 15 years old, so our mode of transportation was our feet. But before we headed out, we stopped at a small house on the other side of the tracks, and a beautiful five-foot-tall woman, girl, dressed in a brown leather halter top with her hair in long brown braids, answered the door. The weed smoke was thick. She asked us what we were there for, and we told her something that wasn't expensive but would be perfect for fireworks. Microdot acid was decided to be the perfect drug of choice. That 
is the last thing I remember before waking up a day later in the hospital. But I was told that the six of us were walking down Highway 224 in Bluffton, Indiana. Actually, we weren't just walking. We were playing a game called chicken races. One girl got on the shoulders of another, so there were three teams of two girls each. And the winner is the last one that can keep the girl on their shoulder. Sounds like fun, right? Well, it might have been if we had been on the beach or in a swimming pool instead of in the middle of a highway under the influence of powerful mind-altering drugs. It's not hard to guess what happened next. It was dusk and a man that had just pulled out of the driveway of Goodwin's funeral home and came up over a hill into the glare of the setting sun and plowed smack into six head-tripping teenagers. I woke up momentarily in the Wells County Hospital to Monsignor Conroy giving me my last rites. Apparently, I told him to get the fuck out of my room and that I wasn't dying. The next time I woke up, my head was pounding, partially shaved, and sewn up with stitches from a fractured skull. There was bloody gauze covering the entire right side of my body where I had slid across the pavement and I was in a brace due to two broken collarbones. And yes, I was lucky to be alive. But the accident dramatically changed my life. My brain no longer worked the way it did before the accident. My days of being an A++ student were over, as was my dream of a career that would get me noticed as somebody that was worthy and valid. It didn't matter how long I spent trying to write a paper or study for an exam. The best I could do was a B-, minus. but C's and D's were more common. The pressure I felt was overwhelming and I needed relief. I turned to competitive running, which brought me some ribbons and trophies. And if I worked my body really hard, I could get a little relief of my brain chatter about how much I sucked. The way that I pounded my body is similar to cutting in order not to feel the internal pain. But the glory wasn't long-lasting. Then I found something so much better, heroin and quaaludes. The results were magical. In our family, not going to college was not an option. All of the kids were expected to attend so that we didn't get stuck working in a factory like my father. So, my running and jumping ability got me into Ball State University, and I would have been fine if all I was required to do was run and jump. But I didn't go to classes and spent the day getting high and listening to music. Very soon, my transformation was complete. The once promising A++ student was now a druggy college dropout. My dad was in agony. The tears my mom shed on her ironing board when I was four were a light sprinkle compared to the downpour that came from her now. But hey, whatever. After all, they still had six good kids that all went on to get masters and PhDs. I ran away to New York City out of shame. I didn't keep in touch with my family for months at a time. I went from wanting to be perfect enough to take away my mom's tears to being so imperfect that I couldn't even live with myself. I checked into a shady hotel and began to itch, shake, 
and vomit. I looked in the mirror and saw a girl that I didn't recognize, and the memory of my father's face distorted in agony, like a Francis Bacon painting, and the imprint of my mom's body bent over from a broken heart were clearly etched in my psyche. This realization of how my actions were not insular is what was the impetus to get clean. The process was a nightmare, but I did it. And as irony would have it, I ended up in the modeling world, which is all about being perfect. So here I go again. I have to have the perfect clothes, the perfect body, the perfect hair, perfect skin, the perfect walk. Once again, I became obsessed with exercise. For Christ's sake, I started counting the calories of a Tic Tac, and everyone was prettier than I was. I never added up regardless of what job I was booked for. This dramatically fed my feelings of inadequacy and unworthiness. My job was to look good and not use my voice. My modeling agency wanted me to buy bigger breasts and bigger teeth. I made appointments for free consultations, but I couldn't do it. My parents were so proud that they had scraped enough money to put me in braces. So my breast and teeth size were inadequate. Great. Add two more to my already endless list of faults. But I knew how to work hard, and I never missed a casting and ended up being successful. I could show a dolman sleeve and the flow of a granny nightgown like no one else. I was in high demand for catalog work, such as Sears and JCPenney's. I was able to buy my parents a car and pay off their mortgage. My mom, my dad, and my siblings forgave me long ago for the difficulties that I put them through. But in my body, I was still an uneducated, imperfect addict who deeply hurt and shamed her family and was unworthy of love or respect. I used whatever I could control to keep it together and keep smiling for the camera, mainly shopping in sex. Just when I thought I had this in-control and perfect image thing all figured out, I was camping with my five brothers. 1989, I was struck by lightning. As a result of this lightning strike, I started having grand mal seizures, the ultimate in having no control at all, and they were definitely not pretty. When I tell you that these seizures happened at awkward times, believe me, they still do, actually. So I was 28, nine years into my modeling career, and a friend dragged me to a yoga class. This was another one of those moments where my life changed. I walked out with a peace that I hadn't known since drugs. I was relaxed, awake, and alive. For an entire year, I would lie in final relaxation and cry. I didn't know why. And it wasn't good for the bags under my eyes, which I already had a lot of complaints from my modeling clients about. But I now know that that release was a somatic relief. I was letting go of a lifetime 
of storage hidden inside this body, I was starting to realize just how bound up, shut off, numb, and scared I had become. Striving for perfection will kill us. Keeping up a pretense is exhausting and sucks the life force right out of us. It keeps us locked up internally and our potential will not be met due to fear of failure. Sometimes you don't even know how much pain you're in until it isn't there, or you don't realize how numb you are until the real-life emotions surface. But looking at me, it seemed like I was living the dream. A farm girl from Indiana makes it big in Paris and New York City. I had the looks and the money. By the time I was 21, I owned a loft in Soho. I had a hotshot photographer boyfriend that became one of my three husbands. I wasn't living the dream. I was living a nightmare. The funny thing about the word vulnerable is that it translates to to be wounded. I wouldn't show my wounds or my vulnerability. The problem with vulnerability is that we build armor around it so that not only can no one else see it, but we also can't touch it. We are all wounded, and isolation is not part of the solution. It merely adds to the problem. We have become experts at pretending and therefore have a society of men and women that feel like frauds. And that is the feeling that we perpetuate to our children. I was so afraid to touch my wounds for fear that it would be bloody and embarrassing. So I covered it up by being busy and thinking that being successful would hide my inadequacies from the world. But being successful isn't about buying cars or houses. It is about befriending yourself. It is about falling in love with yourself. It is about setting down your weapons that carry on that inner conflict. It is about not waging war with our bodies or our minds. It is about taking the shackles off of your imprisoned voice. It is about embracing imperfections and fuck-ups along the way. It is about connecting rather than alienating. It is about freeing up your body and voice to express your offering to the world without shrinking back into an old, worn-out story. It is about uncovering where the story is stuck at the body and taking it out for tea. But the only way that we can live with love and be truly happy is to address what is holding us back. Yoga gave me these tools, and I have dedicated my life to educating others so that they will also have these tools. When I was asked to introduce myself to you, I could tell you that I am a successful model, a world-renowned yoga teacher, owner of three yoga studios, a published author. I worked in Calcutta with Mother Teresa for the Missionaries of Charity, co-founded the Urban Zen Integrative Therapy Program, am a devoted mother, and happily married, third time around. Or I could tell you that I am a pathetic, brain-damaged, uneducated, epileptic addict, and I'm on my third husband. Both are true and both are false. Why tie it up in a little box as, this is my identity, I'll wear it on my lapel, I am better or I am worse than you. So, who the hell am I? I am a vulnerable woman 
that is doing the best that she can. I have had successes and failures. I love and win, and I love and lose. I have hurt people, and I have helped them, but none define me. This realization has evolved through a lot of years of unlocking my body with yoga techniques and understanding that there is no such thing as perfection. And thinking that there is will never allow you to truly live. To really live a full human existence, if you pump weights, your biceps, triceps, and deltoids get stronger. If you train the mind to realize your validity, that will strengthen that muscle. It takes practice and courage. We're bombarded with an unrelenting stream of propaganda, both overt and subtle, about self-improvement. The message is that you need to improve. You are not good enough. You are inadequate and you are invalid. You aren't as pretty or successful or as intelligent as others. And for heaven's sake, you better not age. Let's dive into our body and see where we are clinging to these lies. These ideas of, if I were only perfect, get stored in the body and wreak havoc on us, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. The way to start living a happy life without perfection as the benchmark is to start living in the present moment and notice where our thoughts land in the body. The ideas of needing to be better and not being enough are stored in the body. Let's take a moment. Close your eyes and think of a situation that caused that feeling of shame or guilt, inadequacy. And just take a moment and see where that registers in your body. Where do you feel that? Is it in your throat? Is it in your heart? Is it in your gut? Is it somewhere else? Slowly let your eyes open. This is important information. This is the first step to understanding where your personal dumping ground is. We can talk all we want about feelings of inadequacy on a couch, but our issues are in our tissues, and that is where we need to go to uncover them. It is a relief when we open the box of decades of shoving our hidden feelings in there. No more self-improvement practices. How can we come to the fact that we are already enough? Change the narrative Train your mind as if you are training a puppy. Notice every time you slip back into the habit of self-deprecation, change to self-love, acceptance, connection to self and others, setting down that need to be better than another. Stop waiting to be perfect to live. As Franklin Roosevelt quoted, Comparison is the thief of joy. Every time you feel that same internal binding, notice the thought and change the thought. Instead of getting on social media or grabbing a drink, sit with sensation. Develop a new habit. Train your mind. Yoga Chitta Vritti Nirodha is the Sanskrit definition of yoga. Yoga is the cessation or redirection of the chatter of the mind. 
train the mind, free the body, change your story. If we create internal space, then we won't be defined by our angst. It will just be part of the beautiful patchwork. Yoga, by which I mean posture, breathing, and meditation, creates space in your living body. So instead of scraping by in a dilapidated house with its broken windows and crooked floors and leaking roof, we create a beautiful chapel where there's plenty of elbow room to expand and flourish. This is where we truly belong. We experience the feeling that Dorothy so well expresses at the end of The Wizard of Oz. There's no place like home. This will not be immediate. We have all spent a lifetime building armor, but little by little we move back into our beautiful home and are in awe of the beauty. And when we are stripped to the raw, real, and vulnerable place, it gives others the permission to do the same. So then true communication can happen. We are no longer a bunch of metal clunking into more metal, but we are humans touching humans. We aren't living in an isolated prison, falling in love and becoming intimate with our imperfect, perfect selves will set us free. Believe that you are enough. There is nothing missing. From the words of one of my favorite musicians, Lucinda Williams, we were born to be loved. Sit with that. Gather your hands in front of your heart. At the end of every yoga class, we gather our hands and we say namaste, which means the deepest part of me bows to the deepest part of you. Bow your head and repeat after me. Namaste. Thank you for listening. To get the most out of this show, check out the yoga videos available only on the Himalaya Learning platform. Himalaya Learning provides bite-sized courses from world-class thinkers and industry experts for you to enjoy in the app, on the go. To access exclusive content for this show and others like it, go to Himalaya.com and enter promo code YOGA for your first 14 days free. We hope you enjoy. This podcast is produced, recorded, and mixed by Cynthia Daniels at Monk Music Studios in East Hampton, New York. The theme music for Yoga for Life was composed by Melissa and Rob Lunsgaard.